This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. How can visiting the sites of America's racist past help us create a less racist future? I'm Jamil Smith, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. There has been an ideological war going on over the history and remembrance of slavery in this country since, well, there was slavery. The utter villainy of the enterprise is unquestionable, but it must have been particularly evident to everyone who was seeking to lie about it. From the start, holding kidnapped Africans and their descendants in bondage was portrayed as something not only essential, but noble. The falsehoods about slavery and the Confederacy that propagated it have been spread not merely through violence and propaganda, but in our textbooks, by our monuments, and within our modern American politics. In his latest book, How the Word is Passed, Atlantic Magazine staff writer Clint Smith III writes, quote, For so many of them, history isn't the story of what actually happened. It is just the story they want to believe. Confederate history is family history, in which loyalty takes precedence over truth. Clint's book is a journey through those willful misconstructions in present time. Starting in 2017, the start of the Trump era, he visited eight places in the United States and one location abroad to, as he put it, understand how each reckons with its relationship to the history of American slavery. It's an uncompromising piece of work, one that I hope everyone who listens to this conversation, and those who don't, pick up and read. Dr. Clint Smith III, my man, thanks for joining Box Conversations. It's good to be here, Jamil. Uh, At the center of your book is the idea that the world we live in necessitates the kind of education your book offers. So let's just dive into that. Tell me how this whole project came to be. Yeah. So as a, as a little bit of background, the book itself is about how different historical sites across the country reckon with or fail to reckon with their relationship to the history of slavery. So I go to different places across the country and, and try to understand the extent to which they are being honest about their relationship to this history and to the extent to which they're not. And the origin of it is that in my hometown in New Orleans, In 2017, I was watching the statues of several Confederate monuments come down. So statue of P.G.D. Beauregard, Jefferson Davis, Robert E. Lee, and thinking about what it meant that I grew up in a majority black city in which there were more homages to enslavers than there were to enslaved people. 
And what does that mean? What does that mean that in New Orleans, to get to school, I went down Robert E. Lee Boulevard. To get to the grocery store, I had to go down Jefferson Davis Parkway. To That my middle school was named after a leader of the Confederacy. That my parents lived on a street and continue to live on a street named after somebody who owned 150 enslaved people. And what does that mean? Because we know that symbols and iconography and names are not just symbols. They are reflective of the stories that people tell. And those stories shape the narratives that communities carry. And those narratives shape public policy. And public policy shapes the material conditions of people's lives, which isn't to say that taking down a 60-foot statue of Robert E. Lee is going to erase the racial wealth gap. Of course not. But it is to say that (laughs) all of these things are part of the same ecosystem of ideas and stories that help shape how we understand what has happened to certain communities and how we understand what needs to be done for those communities in order to move forward. And so when we think about tradition and what is passed down, I mean, the the book is entitled How the Word is Passed because it's taken from a quote from a descendant of a Black enslaved family at Monticello, the plantation of Thomas Jefferson, and talking about the way that Black families But since they didn't have so many of the documents that other people had in order to mark and document their history, you know, Black people weren't included in the census until 1870. The story of who our families were was passed down orally. It became in and of itself a sort of heirloom. These stories became heirlooms that were passed down through generations that helped give us a sense of who our families were, where they came from. And those things help us sort of situate ourselves in relationship to the history of this country. And I, the book is exploring the way that those heirlooms are passed down in the context of the descendants of enslaved families and the descendants of people who fought for the Confederacy and everything in between. And not simply do you go to these sites, you know, I found most surprising, especially towards the end of the book, you did not nearly go to the sites that one might expect to find this kind of iconography, you know, plantations, Angola prison, which I guess was about two hours from where you grew up in Louisiana, but also here to New York City and to Galveston Island, which, you know, a lot of people are now more familiar with because Juneteenth is now a national holiday. Tell me a little bit about how you chose the particular sites that you did, because certainly you had, unfortunately, many choices of places to go. Yeah, I mean, the the book is about eight different historical sites, nine if you include the prologue and New Orleans. And so while it's about eight different places, I mean, like you said, I could have gone to 100,008, you know, like there's no shortage of places across this country that have a relationship to the history of slavery in which this history is sort of scarred onto the landscape. But part of what I wanted to do was go to places that represented a sort of patchwork of memories, a patchwork of experiences that served as a sort of literary quilt, if you will, right, to capture places that represented the different parts of the spectrum of how slavery is remembered or misremembered. And so you have a place like the Whitney Plantation, which is one of the only plantations in the country that centers the lives of enslaved people, even though that should be what every plantation does. But it is surrounded by a constellation of plantations in Louisiana uh, where people continue to hold weddings. You know, I talked to wedding planners where people use the former slave cabins as bridal suites, where people can celebrate one of the most joyous days of their lives on the site of what I can only understand as a place of intergenerational torture and exploitation. And the Whitney is a place that sort of fundamentally rejects that and fundamentally rejects the idea that a plantation can and should be understood as anything other than a site of torture, while at the same time lifting up the humanity of those who 
were tortured and exploited on that land. And so on one end of the spectrum, you have that. And then on the other end, you have a place like Angola prison, which is only uh, an hour or two away from the Whitney. But in terms of how it reckons with its own relationship to the history of slavery, it's fundamentally different. Um, you know, it's the largest maximum security in the country, and it is built on top of a former plantation that shows little desire to engage and confront the fact that that is a deeply foundational part of its history that shapes what the landscape of that place looks like today. And so I wanted to capture the places on that end of the spectrum, on the other end of the spectrum, and then sort of in between. And, and ultimately, you know, I tried to find places that represented some of the themes that I might find in other locations. So I, you know, when I go to Monticello, you know, I wrote about Monticello and Thomas Jefferson, but I could have easily written a chapter about George Washington and Mount Vernon right. or James Madison and Mount Pelier. But my hope is that in going to one place, I am able to tease out some of the themes and and ideas that one might find in other places. And ultimately, you know, I also didn't want the book to be a sort of 800 page desk weight. And so <laughs> I know what it's like to see a book that you really want to read and then to look at it and be sort of intimidated by the size. Uh, I did not want that to be the case with my book. So also just logistically, I didn't want the book to be a sort of overwhelming physical artifact. And so, you know, maybe there will be a part two. Who knows? Right. Well, I was going to say there's plenty to teach. And as we know, man, you know, your PhD is in education from Harvard. And honestly, you know, just as an aside, man, I don't know how you did this at the same time you were doing a dissertation. I did the math <laughs> when I read the prologue. <laughs> it, uh, I, w I wouldn't recommend it. I imagine not. But what you said there about Monticello reminds me of uh, what your tour guide, David, said, which is, quote, I think that history is the story of the past using all the available facts and that nostalgia is a fantasy about the past using no facts. And that fundamental difference that he notes there is really, I think, you know, what your book strikes at the heart of and the fact that you were able to do that while the Trump era was essentially being born and that this kind of nostalgia was being even more politicized. I thought that was very fortunate timing in a way for the book and for the lessons that you had to teach. Yeah. I mean, it, the book begins in Monticello and, and Monticello was the first place that I went when I started conceiving of, of this book. And I wanted to go there because I think Monticello in and of itself and Jefferson specifically, the patron of Monticello, so to speak, Jefferson, I think, embodies and personifies so many of the contradictions and so much of the hypocrisy and so much of the cognitive dissonance of America, in the sense that America is a place that has provided unparalleled, unimaginable, unfathomable opportunities to millions of people across generations to achieve upward mobility and accumulate wealth in ways that their ancestors could have never imagined. But it has done so at the direct expense of millions and millions of other people who have been intergenerationally subjugated and oppressed. And both of those things, both of those realities are the story of America. And Jefferson similarly is somebody who carries that dissonance within himself. He wrote one of the most important documents in the history of the Western world and also enslaved over 600 people over the course of his lifetime, including four of his own children. He is someone who wrote in one document that all men are created equal and wrote in another document that black people are inferior to whites in both endowments of body and mind. And so when David, the tour guide at Monticello, who's this sort of remarkable character, and part of what I love about narrative nonfiction is that sometimes you find these people on your, on your reporting trips who are sort of better than any 
character you could come up with if you were attempting to write a novel. Their personalities are so rich and their backgrounds are so complex and dynamic and three-dimensional. And David was just such an incredible person to find and, and had these quotes like the one that you said there that I think really captured what Monticello is now attempting to do and, and in many ways attempting to make up for what it failed to do for so long, which is to say that Thomas Jefferson is central to our understanding of the founding of this country. He is central to our understanding of how the American project and the American experiment was imagined and conceived. And he is also someone who knowingly did things that ran counter to the ethos and spirit that he purported to endorse in this American experiment that they were attempting to build. And so you have to hold all of those at once and you can't pretend like this slave owning part of Jefferson was not central to his identity, is not central to how we should remember him. When the only reason he was able to do so many of the things that he did, the only reason he was able to write the letters and engage with the philosophy and do the science and travel to these places was because of the hundreds of enslaved people on his plantation who were engaged in the labor that made his life possible. And so it's not even a like, put one thing over there and put one thing over here. It's like, you have to hold all of this together. And part of what David is saying is like, so much of how we remember Jefferson, so much of how we remember this country, so much of how we understand ourselves is often based in a sort of nostalgic conception of those things, which is not an honest conception of those things. And we have to be honest if we're going to fully understand how America's past has, has shaped its present. With regard to the narrative nonfiction approach, I mean, there's lots of ways to tell this story, of course. Why do you feel like that was the way to go? And also, why do you feel like it's particularly effective? Yeah, it's interesting, you know, because it didn't originally begin that way. So as, huh. as you know, my sort of training as a writer is originally as a poet. And so I came to writing as a poet. My first book is a collection of poems. I sort of came of age in the D.C. poetry scene. When I started thinking about these questions, when I started thinking about the Confederacy and thinking about slavery and thinking about memory, thinking of how we understand and misunderstand this history, at first, you know, as I was watching these statues come down in New Orleans, I was thinking, okay, well, maybe I'll do a, my second collection of poems will be about different monuments in New Orleans and the conceit will be each poem is about a different monument and I'll sort of, you know, do it like that. But I think I quickly learned that I wanted my exploration to, one, move beyond New Orleans, two, move beyond the Confederacy and monuments specifically. You know, poetry is both the creation of art for me, but it is also the mechanism by which I do my best thinking. So when I was writing these early poems, thinking about this history, it helped me realize that I needed a little bit more room to breathe. I needed a little bit more space than a poem might afford. And so then I started writing these sort of longer essays about different places. And, and I was like, mm, this isn't really getting me where I need to go. And, and then when I went to Monticello, on that tour with David that we mentioned, I met these two women, Donna and Grace. And I went up to them after the tour with David. And, and again, in the book, I talk about how David, in the span of an hour, had provided a more honest, complex, and truthful depiction of Jefferson that I had ever encountered in my my own education. And I was on this tour with about a dozen people, and these two white women were clearly unsettled by so much of what they were hearing. And I went up to them after, and I was like, hi, my name's Clint. Like, I'd love to hear 
what that experience was like for you, what you think about what David said. And they were like, man, he really took the shine off the guy. I had no idea Jefferson owned slaves. I had no idea that Monticello was a plantation. And mind you, these are folks who, you know, they bought plane tickets. They rented cars. They got hotel rooms. They came to this place as a sort of pilgrimage to see the home of one of our founding fathers and the third president of the United States and had no conception of this place being a plantation and had no idea that this person was an enslaver. And for me, that moment was really important and clarifying because one, it told me that this shouldn't just be extended personal reflections or meditations on my own visits to these places, but that my reflections and experiences had to be in conversation with the experiences of other people. Like I had to add the reporting to it. I had to add the interviews to it because it made the story much more rich. And if I'm actually trying to get a sense of how different places across the country think about our history to slavery, think about our relationship to the history of slavery, what better way is there to sort of magnify and amplify than by talking to people who are at these sites, whose conception and ideas of American history might be very different than my own. Yeah, I found those moments to be some of the most clarifying of the entire book because you're offering the reader this lens that you have, you know, you've you've read books in libraries for hours and hours and hours. You know the history. You're coming to it and yet you're still enlightened, but they're enlightened from a different perspective entirely. And you're getting that in real time for the book. I, I thought that was particularly you know, poignant and sometimes striking. Yeah, and it was for me too, right? Like, and as much as this goes back to your original question about the narrative nonfiction choice, as much as I had done a lot of research and reading about the history of slavery before beginning this book, and that research is in many ways what led to this book, part of the book writing process itself was because I wanted to learn more about this thing that I, I realized I didn't understand in ways that were actually commensurate with the impact that it had on this country. And so this book is not written by someone who began this book as an expert on the history of slavery. The book itself is a sort of journey of my own learning. It is a journey through which I am going to these different places and reading these different books and meeting these different people that are all more deeply informing my own understanding of this history, my own understanding of this country, and have provided me, you know, four years later with this really remarkable clarity that I think is it's emancipatory. It's sort of liberating because the more you learn about the history of this country, the more this country or the less this country is able to lie to you about why it is the way that it is. The more you can look around and truly recognize that the reason one community looks one way and another community looks another way is not because of the people in those communities, but it's because of what has been done to those communities generation after generation after generation. And so what I, part of why I made the narrative nonfiction choice is that I wanted the reader to feel like they were on this journey with me, that they were on this trip with me to these different sites. And I also didn't want to write a book that felt preachy or didactic or like it was trying to hit you over the head with a hammer, but instead was saying like, I'm out here trying to learn more about the history of this country, and I hope you will come along with me on that journey. In a way, tell me if you think this is weird, but I was reading it and I was reminded of the first time I ever went to the Grand Canyon, which is just a few months ago. And I'd seen pictures of it. I'd seen documentaries about it. You've seen a film that uses it as a metaphor. But actually being there, <laughs> like there's just no way that anyone can adequately describe that. You know, I can't even right now. 
And so I'm thinking about these sites that you've been to. And me as a boy grew up in the northern Midwest. This stuff was not readily available. This stuff is not something I went to on a field trip. (laughs) And I still have a lot of exploration to do myself. I just said to myself, well, I'm valuing what Clint is saying here and what Clint is observing here. But damn it, I need to get on the road (laughs) and see these things for myself. Is that one of the things that you hope readers would take away from this? Oh, absolutely. I think that they should, you know, visit all the different places that I I visited. But even more than that, I kind of hope this book prompts people to to look around their own communities and their own cities and their own states and to realize that there are all sorts of places like this all around them, right? Again, the the scars of enslavement are just etched into the topography of this land, of this country in so many so many ways that could never be captured by any single text. And so I do hope that this serves as a catalyst of interest for people to go to these places and to walk across the land, to stand in the buildings, to to be in the spaces where this history happened, because nothing can compare to that, right? Like, it's one thing to read about a slave cabin, and it's another thing to stand inside of one. It's another thing to walk inside of that cabin and hear the wood moan under your feet, to see the way that sunlight sort of slides in through cracks in the wood planks on the side of of this small home and to recognize how susceptible to the elements the people inside of it would have been. You know, it's one thing to read about Monticello and it's another thing to like be on that mountaintop and to walk across those paths that are the same paths that were built by enslaved hands, to see Jefferson's home and recognize that it was built by enslaved labor, to be at Angola, right? Like I've worked in prisons and jails for the past several years as a, as a teacher, but I had never experienced anything like Angola prison. I had never, to see black men working in the fields of what was once a plantation while someone watches them on horseback with a gun over their shoulder in a place where they work for virtually no pay, pennies on the hour. It is difficult to put into words what that feels like, like what this really feels like in your body. And I tried my best to do that in this book and tried my best to bring both depictions of how seeing these things and feeling these things, watching these things, standing inside of these places made me feel. And also to create a sort of, you know, sensory experience for the reader. Like, what do these places look like? What do they smell like? What does the air taste like? What are the voices of the people who are responsible for telling the stories of this land sound like? What are their backgrounds? I really wanted it to be a sort of cinematic experience, almost, where the reader feels sort of surrounded by the sights and sounds and sensory details and and texture that make these places what they are. Yeah. What you're saying is a way that you can viscerally experience it by being there. And it's a necessary thing. I think we have to do in order to help bridge the empathy gap. You know, folks who don't understand or just through no fault of their own, frankly, were not made fluent in blackness the way that we are forced to be fluent in whiteness. That kind of thing, it reaches people. And that's why I'm really so thankful for this work that you've put out, because it's something that will reach people even when they honestly in ways that they may not even realize until much later. I appreciate you saying that. And yeah, I mean, you know, people have asked me about audience and like, who is this book for? Who do you hope reads it? As an author, you hope many people read your book and you hope as many people read your book as possible. But I hope everybody reads this. (laughs) (laughs) You and me both. But It was written first and foremost, as I kind of alluded to before, for me, right? Like this was a learning journey 
for myself. And I wanted to write the sort of book that like high school Clint really could have used in his classroom. And that high school English teacher Clint really could have used as a text to teach in his classroom. But I also recognize that there are many people, to your point, there are a lot of people who just don't know, right? And who don't even know that they don't know. And I think there's a balance to be struck, right? Like we should recognize the ways in which the infrastructure of our educational system across this country has profoundly failed so many people across generations in ways that teach them or have failed to teach them about the legacy of slavery, of Jim Crow, and the like, and all of the hundreds of years, the centuries of state-sanctioned oppression that have created the conditions, the contemporary conditions of inequality that we see today. And it's not to say that presenting people with that information will in and of itself change them. That's not in our control. It's not in my control. It's not in any writer or artist or media person or scholar's control. But I I think we should take seriously what it means to attempt to provide people with information that helps provide clarity about why our society looks the way that it does. And because I know what it's done for me. Like, I know what learning this information has done for me. I know how much clarity it has given me. I know how freeing it has been for me. I know how it has sort of released me from a sort of paralysis that I felt as a kid, right? Like so much of my childhood was shaped by being inundated with these messages about all the things that were wrong with Black people from society and not having the language or the framework or the toolkit with which to push back against it, not to have the language to push back against it, not to have the history to push back against it. And I feel like I have so much of that now. And there's not, I can't adequately describe how important it has been for me. And I hope that in different ways, depending on somebody's background and sensibilities and what they're bringing to this work, that this work can similarly be freeing in in some way for them. Because again, the more you learn about this history, the more you realize that so much of the inequality we see around us, it makes sense. It is the logical conclusion of so much of what we have done and in many ways continue to do. It's clearly a powerful experience to visit these places and be exposed to the atrocities of the former Confederacy and the Jim Crow South. But the South, of course, isn't the only part of America where we can actively engage with the history of slavery. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. 
Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. For those who might think that this is book just about slavery, I remember your section on New York City where you came here and then just engage in the history of the slave trade, you know, say through the banks like J.P. Morgan Chase and whatnot. But you also you know, went to places like Seneca Village. Well, literally, like there is a buried black neighborhood in Central Park. Can you tell us a little bit about why you felt that it was necessary to be here and a site that people don't really know as much about with regards to its connection to slavery? Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to come to New York City generally because, one, I wanted to make sure that people understood, you know, if somebody's, for example, reading this book and it is their entry point into the history of slavery in America, I didn't want to create a piece of work that, by excluding northern cities, made it seem as if the South was the only area engaged in this practice. Certainly, it was concentrated and centralized in, in many ways in the South because the South's sort of social and economic foundations relied heavily upon the institution of slavery. But it was not singularly a Southern institution. And people don't realize all, always that New York City was the second largest slave market in the country after Charleston, South Carolina, for an extended period of time. They don't realize that on the eve of the Civil War, Fernando Wood, the mayor of New York City, suggested that New York City secede from the Union alongside the Confederacy because New York's economic and social infrastructure was so deeply entangled in the slaveocracy of the South. Or that the Statue of Liberty was originally conceived of as a gift to the United States celebrating the abolition of slavery. And then over time, had its meaning shifted and changed because this was right after the Civil War and you had millions of people who were not necessarily supportive of something that was celebrating, you know, if you're on the losing side of it, you know, that is lifting up and celebrating a war or the cause of a war that you just lost. And so they they moved the shackles. There were broken shackles that were originally in Lady Liberty's hands and they took them out and switched it for the torch and the book and then moved the shackles to uh, her feet or just under her robe, but you can only see these broken shackles if you're looking from an aerial view. So like if you're on Liberty Island, you can't actually see the broken chains that are meant to symbolize abolition. And when we think of like a metaphor that really captures how so much of the history of slavery is sort of hidden in plain sight, I think the Statue of Liberty embodies that in a really remarkable way because it's right there. It's right there in front of us, but you can't see it because it has purposefully been hidden and obfuscated in an attempt to minimize, seemingly minimize, the nature of what that symbol's relationship to slavery was. Obviously, we have a lot of folks right now who are trying to do the same kind of obfuscation, you know, trying to criminalize not only the teaching and learning about this kind of history, but really anti-racism in and of itself. With your book, 
being published in this kind of climate of you know false outrage and propaganda. What are your thoughts? You know, I, I definitely believe in works always being unfinished. Is there something maybe you wish you could add to the book in light of what's going on right now? Man, you know, it's one of those things where like, for me, it's hard to end a book because it could just keep going. There are so many other places that I would have loved to depict. I mean, I would have loved to, but for COVID, I would have loved to have gone out West. I think there's a lot to be said about slavery in California, in Washington, in Oregon, which is not part of our sort of public discourse uh, or not part of our public consciousness around how we understand and remember slavery in this country. Uh, I remember I finished my, the last reporting that I did for the book was in February of 2020. It was like two or three weeks before everything shut down. So I felt really grateful that I, you know, a book that relied heavily on traveling to places and reporting that I had finished doing so before COVID and could do the sort of writing and editing process over the course of the the next year. But yeah, I think, you know, but for the pandemic, there are other places that I I might have gone. But at the same time, you know, maybe that's the universe telling me the book was what it was supposed to be. And if there's another project that will include some other places, then we'll see. Maybe part two is how the word keeps passing on. And, you know, who knows? But um, I worked on this book for four years. I gave it everything I had. And the interesting thing about writing a book over the course of an extended period of time is that you also change as you are writing the book, right? So like, you know, I became a father. I have two young children. I moved cities. This was also written over the course of the Trump era, you know? And so my sensibilities were shifting. My politics were shifting. My life was shifting. And so, you know, the person who finished the book is, I think, necessarily different than the person who began the book. And if I were to start this book again today, it might look a little bit different than than it would have when I started originally in 2017. So all that's to say, I'm proud of what it is, and I hope that there will be other opportunities to keep building on it. Yeah, not having that lens myself, how did becoming a dad change your viewpoint on all of this? Yeah, it's it definitely animates the way that I... I mean, it animates the way that I make sense of the world, the way I understand who I am in the world. And that understandably, and I think necessarily informs how I make sense of the places I go and the people that I meet. You know, we talked about Donna and Grace, you know, when I was talking to them, I was like showing them pictures of, you know, my then, I think, four or five month old son. And, you know, when I'm at the Whitney Plantation and I'm standing in the uh, what's called the Field of Angels which is an exhibit that documents the thousands of enslaved children who died in infancy or as children during slavery in Louisiana in the 19th century. The emotional impact of a space like that is different Mm. because I can't help but think about my own children. You know, there's a statue in the middle of that exhibit of a, of an angel holding the body of a child who's passed away. And, I, when I wasn't emotionally prepared for how that would hit me as someone who at that point when I was doing the reporting had, you know, an almost two year old and my wife was a few weeks away from giving birth to my daughter. So it made the experience of so many of these places more visceral. Uh, it made the stakes feel higher. And I think, too, I think for some reason, so much of the way that we understand slavery in our public consciousness is centered on the sort of spectacle of physical abuse, mm. which is understandable, right? Like, I mean, it's yeah. the beatings, it's the whippings, it's the, I mean... The keloids. Yeah, that is what is depicted on so much of the 
the cinema and the film and the television. And I understand why, because it is abhorrent, it is gruesome, and it captures so much of the nature it embodies and almost is a metaphor for the immorality of this institution. Right. And it's also something we don't see anymore. Hmm. And that's the thing. It's like people think that racism was that. Racism mm-hmm. looks like that. And when we see it, you know, Denzel shedding a tear when he's getting whipped. And when we see mm-hmm. 12 Years a Slave, it's important that we see that and understand those stories as having happened. But there's also a danger in that. And thinking that that is all racism actually looks like when it manifests itself and that it doesn't manifest itself in negative health outcomes and in poor education and in various other ways that uh, climate discrepancies with regards to neighborhoods. This is the kind of thing we need to relate the stuff you're talking about in this book to you know what's happening in present day. And I think you do that very well in the book. I appreciate that. Yeah. And I absolutely agree that I think it can distort our understanding of what racism was or is and and also distort our understanding of what slavery was right like slavery was certainly defined by that but the point i was making about the kids is that i never fully for some reason grappled with the nature of like family separation Mm -hmm. and slavery and i obviously knew that it happened but i never really sat with it and i never really sat with like what that meant and i think having two young children who are now four and two Sometimes as I was writing this book, I would try to do these sort of empathy exercises. You know, I was remember sitting at, after hearing David talk about families being separated at Monticello, I kind of sat for a moment on the bench under one of the mulberry trees there. And I just closed my eyes and imagined if I were in my home and I woke up the next day and my children were gone, Mm. just had been disappeared. And I had no idea where they were. And I didn't know if I would ever see them again. I mean, I can't even, the fear, like I can't even sit with the thought for too long because it is so profoundly jarring to consider. But the reality is that millions and millions of enslaved people lived under the omnipresent threat that that could happen to them or members of their family or their friends or members of their community at any moment. Right. Like at any moment, you could be separated from your husband or your wife or your parents or your children or the people in your communities, people you love. And I think having kids really brought that home in a different sort of way, because I just can't. It's just so hard to even wrap my head around the idea that that could happen. But it obviously happened. And it was central. It was like really central to the institution and to the not only that it happened, but that the threat of it happening was used as a mechanism of psychological terror to push enslaved people to continue to do the work that they did for fear that if they did not, they might be separated from their families or their loved ones. Yeah, I had to sit with that for a minute myself. And I don't even have kids. It brings to mind, honestly, the thought about you starting your graduate education right when Michael Brown was shot. And, you know, how did the events in Ferguson, Trayvon Martin before that, how did the events, that, you know, that helped bring police brutality and the disproportionate effect that it has on black communities, how did that inform your graduate work? In, in enormous ways. I mean, Mike Brown was killed the same week I started graduate school. 
So I, I can't disentangle, you know, the six years I spent getting my PhD from the experience of watching what was happening in Ferguson while I was going through my doctoral orientation. And I think what it did was it it made clear what the stakes were, mm-hmm. right? And that this was not just going to be an intellectual exercise. This could not and should not simply remain an abstraction. That the things that I was learning or trying to learn in this setting was an attempt to gain a toolkit and assemble a toolkit with which to more effectively name, identify, and work on behalf of the communities that I care about. And so, you know, I think one of the first things that I did was uh, I started teaching in prisons. And so I started teaching at a prison in Massachusetts, Norfolk, Massachusetts, in part because, you know, I was sitting around doing what graduate students do. I was sitting around reading Foucault and thinking (laughs) about theory. And, you know, that's not to downplay theory. Theory is helpful and and really generative. But I could not sit around reading books about incarceration without engaging with incarcerated people. For me, I know how I learn best and I know how I move best and most thoughtfully and most empathically and most urgently through the world. And it is when that I am regularly engaging with and encountering people who are experiencing the things that I'm researching or studying to remind myself that, again, it is not just an intellectual exercise. It is not just a paper. I'm not just doing this to sort of stretch the muscles of my own brain, that I'm trying to learn these things and better understand these systems and institutions and histories in order to make sense of the very real conditions people are living through today. And so, you know, working in prison, as we were having this sort of larger national conversation about the carceral state and the extensions of the carceral state, you know, and the tentacles of policing and the criminal legal system, was a really profound reminder for me of like what prison does to people. Because now these folks weren't just, they weren't abstractions, they weren't nameless, they weren't faceless. These were people who I knew, whose stories I knew, who I laughed alongside, who I cried alongside, who I learned alongside. It it is also just a reminder that the vast, vast, vast majority of people who end up entangled in the criminal legal system are people who are born into a set of social circumstances that would be incredibly difficult for any of us to escape from or to make a life for ourselves in the way that we have maybe been fortunate enough to make a life for ourselves today. And so it's It's also this reminder of how the arbitrary nature of birth and circumstance shapes the life outcomes and trajectories of people in really profound ways. And, and I think being reminded of that and being reminded that but for the arbitrary nature of birth and circumstance, I very easily could have been on the other side of those bars instead of being a teacher coming in and out of them was really important for me, right? Because there's nothing inherent to me right, or anything inherent to what I've done that makes me worthy of like having gone to graduate school or working for the Atlantic or writing a book. And that if I had been born into a different set of circumstances, my, my, my life might've looked very different. And that's not to say people don't have agency, but it is to say that we have to understand how people's agency manifests itself in the social and historical and political contexts from which it is emerging. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's true of us both. We're both born in cities where, if not for the guidance and a few, you know, fortunate turns, our lives will be very different. And one thing I'm curious about, you were born and raised in 
the most carceral state that there is in this union. How did the circumstances of your birth and your adolescence shape you? Yeah, I mean, I think I I was very lucky and grew up in a home with two college-educated parents and grew up in a home where I always felt very loved and I felt very safe. Uh, I felt very affirmed. And I am deeply, deeply grateful for that and would not be who I am, would not be where I am without that. I also, you know, you're a black kid growing up in New Orleans and I grew up in a very mixed income neighborhood. I went to a very sort of mixed income set of public schools. And so, you know, I'm regularly encountering people whose life circumstances are different than mine and being reminded of how how proximate that despite, you know, having these college educated parents and, and in some ways ostensibly being shielded from the difficulties of so much of what was plaguing New Orleans, that I wasn't actually shielded from it, that I was deeply proximate to it. And that, as we know from the deep sociological literature, that having well-educated parents in and of itself is not enough to protect a Black child from the tentacles of the carceral state. And so I was thinking about that. And I was just thinking about, again, like I grew up in this city in which, you know, people were always like, New Orleans is the murder capital of the nation. It incarcerates more people per capita than China, Iran, and Russia, you know, comparing us to these authoritarian regimes, talking about how the culture of the projects was so backwards and people, you know, were shooting each other and killing each other and and this sort of implicit immorality that was entangled in these communities. And I remember being inundated with these messages and again, knowing that they were wrong, and knowing that they were misguided and knowing that they were racist, but again, not having the language to push back against it. And my experience as a kid was in some ways being told that I was like the exception to the rule and feeling a sort of paralysis because it felt like people were trying to give me a compliment. But I was like, that's not a compliment <laughs> because what you're suggesting about I, I was often pointed to as like, oh, well, you're a black boy in New Orleans accomplishing X, Y, Z. And that being used as a way to sort of blame people who were not accomplishing or doing the same things. You know, I can look back now and talk and understand how that is the way that systems of oppression operate. Like they use exceptions to the rule in order to legitimate the rule, in order to legitimate the otherwise deep web of oppression that keeps lots of people down. But I didn't know how to say that when I was a kid. And so I think I felt confused. I think I felt frustrated. And I think I was like, I know what these people are saying is wrong, but I don't know how to say it's wrong. And so much of my scholarship and so much of my work, I think, as an adult, is animated by attempting to gain the the language and toolkit with which to more effectively make sense of what I was seeing and hearing around me as a young person in New Orleans. And to make clear that, like, the reason certain communities in New Orleans look the way that they do, again, is not because of anybody in those communities. It is very clearly and directly about what has been done to those communities generation after generation after generation. And so even though the world attempts to make people seem as if it is their fault that they live in the conditions that they do, it's far from it. I think all the time about this essay James Baldwin wrote in uh, 1963 or published in 1964, it was based on a speech he gave in 1963, It's called A Talk to Teachers, and it's based on a speech he gave to a group of New York City educators. And in it, he says that the role of the teacher is to help the Black child understand that even though the world tells them over and over again that they are criminal, that it is in fact the society 
that created the conditions that that child is forced to grow up in. It is the history that created the social circumstances that child is forced to grow up in that is actually the criminal. And for many of us, that's intuitive, but I think we can underestimate how many young people aren't given that framework to understand that, like, you didn't do anything to deserve this. This country did this to you. But we can also make a different set of choices about what your life looks like moving forward. It's pretty hard to learn the truth about America when America so often tries to obscure the truth about itself. So today, as conservatives are crusading against critical race theory, do they have a point? Or is it that they just can't handle the truth? That's coming up after one more short break. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. How's your sock drawer looking these days? Underwhelming? Is it the seat of all your disappointments? A wasteland of unmatched sandpaper rough foot sleeves? Well, this spring, you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. Bombas socks have all kinds of features like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back, and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. I believe that, you know, what you're doing in this book and what a lot of folks, other writers are trying to do right now is really in effect remedial education for this country. And like you said before, it's not their fault that they don't know this. I mean, I didn't read Baldwin till after college. There's a lot of things that aren't taught to us that should be. But right now, of course, we have people trying to criminalize the teaching of these kinds of things. And we end up having the same conversations about conversations in lieu of action when it's becoming most urgent. I'm, I'm just curious what you think of that in light of having experience in the classroom that a lot of us don't. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting time because I think that we're in this moment where on the one hand uh, you have Juneteenth that is made a federal holiday, the first new federal holiday in 40 years. And it is a holiday celebrating the end of slavery. And we know that the end of slavery did not come on a single day. It was a, a violent and uneven process, as the historian Caleb McDaniel says. But it is a, a holiday that now symbolizes the end of this institution. And it's a holiday that we should have had 156 years ago when the Civil War ended. And it's pretty abhorrent that we have not had a holiday to celebrate the end of one of the worst things we have ever done until this moment. And at the same time, you have state legislatures across the country that are engaged in a state-sanctioned effort to prevent teachers from teaching the very context 
from which this holiday emerges. And so I think as Black Americans, it's this sort of marathon of cognitive dissonance that is so emblematic of our experience in this country, where there's a sort of both andedness, right? Like right. Juneteenth, it is a good thing that Juneteenth is a holiday because it is the result of the work of generations of Black activists, specifically Black Texans, who have been advocating for this for a long time. And to not take that seriously, I think, would be a, to do a disservice to the work and advocacy that they've been engaged in for years and for decades. At the same time, very clearly, Juneteenth being a national holiday is in and of itself not enough. And there is more work to be done in order to make sure that we are accounting for and making amends for what the history of slavery has has done to Black people in this country. And I think the feeling of seeing Juneteenth become a national holiday while also seeing states attempt to prevent Black people from having access to the ballot, while also seeing states attempt to prevent teachers from teaching the history of slavery and racism, while also navigating a world in which the systems and structures of racism, and as the scholar Stia Hartman says, the afterlife of slavery informs our political, social, and economic infrastructure, and then being told that it doesn't and experiencing this sort of gaslighting, that's exhausting. And it's difficult. And I think, (laughs) you know, to kind of go back to the beginning of our conversation, it's in the same way that we have to hold a lot of complicated things and complex realities and, and oftentimes contradictory realities, it feels like, of somebody like Jefferson. That's our country. Our country is just a web of contradictions, a web of hypocrisy, a web of cognitive dissonance. And that is who it has always been. And part of our work is to, I think, ensure that that we ourselves, first and foremost, I think, have a sort of clear-eyed understanding of that. And that, you know, more and more people develop a clear-eyed understanding of that so that we do not misunderstand why our country looks the way that it does today, that we don't use, you know, notions like the idea of meritocracy or the idea that if you just work hard, everything will will work out for you or good things will happen for you, that we don't allow those sort of socially constructed mythologies to overly romanticize our country to the point where, like, we can't see it for what it actually is. Yeah. And also that we as black people more broadly should not necessarily take the entirety of this burden upon ourselves to correct the course of this kind of education or to silence these myths. Nicole Hannah-Jones and ta Coates pulled like this masterstroke of a move <laughs> and having her refused tenure at UNC after so much controversy and both taking appointments at Howard University, the historically black university in Washington, D.C. I'm thinking back to what she said in her statement from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund in which she said the burden of working for racial justice is laid on the very people bearing the brunt of the injustice, not the powerful people who maintain it. And she said, I say to you, I refuse to do that. And it wasn't on her to go to UNC to help them solve this or to to work their way through this tough learning process. To what degree do you maybe see things shifting in that regard? Because I know for certain that burden has been placed on black folks, specifically black educators. Yeah. I mean, you know, first shout out to Nicole and Tanahasi. I mean, I'm I'm so excited for them. I'm thrilled for Howard. And, you know, I think I tweeted about this before, but like the two of them have just done so much to lay the groundwork for so many black writers coming after them. Amen. 
I, I remember reading the two of them. I remember reading Nicole at ProPublica. I remember reading ta in his early days at The Atlantic. And there just weren't a lot of Black writers in the space. And they worked their butts off for years to have their work be sort of exemplars of what was possible, both through their work and also through their personal sort of mentorship and advocacy and the organizations they've been a part of and have helped create to make room for writers like myself, for whom a book like How the Word is Passed or the fact that I'm now a staff writer at The Atlantic myself, I don't know that those things would have been possible without the path that those two laid. So, Or me being a staff writer at yeah, Vox. I, you know, <laughs> Definitely. The career I have now would not have been possible without them blazing that trail. Absolutely. I remember reading ta blog even before he was at the Atlantic. Yeah. You know, just it's a really amazing time we're living in. It is. You know. It really is. Being able to work along the side, the likes of Adam Serwer and, and Wesley Lowry and Abby Phillip and you know, Michelle Sindor and so many wonderful things happening in black journalism right now. But the burden, again, is not on us to teach white folks about themselves. It's us to you know, do the kind of journalism, frankly, that folks like us who are older than us should have had more opportunities to practice. Absolutely. And I think... It is no one's burden. It is no one's responsibility to write in a way that is dedicated to teaching white people about history, about racism. That is not a burden that anyone should feel they have to carry to carry themselves or, or even to carry at all. I think we all make different decisions at different points in our lives, at different times about who we are writing for what sort of audience we have in mind, and who our work is in service of. And I think that right now, what I'm most struck by is that there are so many Black journalists and so many Black writers who are writing for Black people. Like, they are writing for other Black people to read, Mm -hmm. to watch, to see. But there is a recognition that in writing for ourselves, writing for our community, that there will be other people watching or other people reading. And if there are other folks for whom the work is generative, for whom the work is helpful, for whom the work is meaningful, then that is great. And then hopefully those white folks will go and engage in these conversations and and do this work within predominantly white communities. But, you know, I, I go back again to what I said about my own book. Like this book was written, it was written for a younger version of me. Right? I wrote this book yeah. in service of like a younger version of Clint. And I hope that there are younger 15, 16-year-old Clint's out there for whom this book is helpful and for whom this book does what the writing of it did for me, which was serve as this freeing and emancipatory sort of experience that just made me more fully see this country for what it was. And in doing so, freed me from so many of the lies that I had been told about why this country is the way that it is and why it looks the way that it does. That seems like a good place for us to stop as much as I would love to keep talking with you about this. I just want to thank you for being here and for doing the work that you're doing, brother. And uh, I'll just continue to follow your adventures, my man. I appreciate you. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drostovska. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and Liz Kelly Nelson is the VP of audio at Vox. If you like the show, let us know. 
Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we can improve. If you have ideas for future guests or topics, email us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your family, your friends, your enemies, whomever. And be sure to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Then join us again on Monday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.